Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. What is up, Romies? Welcome to Arroya Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I'm your moderator, Keisha, and this is episode 92. If you're on the Hangout or checking us out live on YouTube or Instagram, drop your question in the chat. And if it gets picked, we'll cover it during the show. Great to be back in studio with you guys. How are you doing, Seth and Jason? Good. Doing good. Sweet. Sounds like you're ready to go. And it's great because I have a really, really good one to get us started. We're going to have a screen share in a second. Let me read the question. Someone is looking for advice. They want to know, what is this? They're on day 22, one-gallon cocoa core, 3.0 feed EC, 5.7 feed pH, 6.2 runup pH, substrate EC is 6 to 12. The buds never produced white pistols. Bottom buds, the same as the top. Half the room right now, it looks to be spreading. Cut one down and looked at the roots, brown but not slimy. All right, so let me show you the photo here. Yeah. Screen share. Mixing it up, y'all. All right. This is what they're dealing with. Oh, Chris is pinning it bigger. There we go. We can see it a little bit now. Hmm. I mean, if root zone's brown, one of the first things that I would do is check dissolved oxygen levels. So easiest thing to do is take your reservoir temperature, get an idea of is it high or low. Um, if it is too high, then definitely could be causing some strange issues like that as far as how the plant's reacting. Um, anytime that we have low levels of oxygen in the root zone, it's not going to be as healthy. Um, you know, other things that we can look at there that might be related in the same area would be, you know, how wet are we running that? Are we uh, doing appropriate drybacks? How often are we irrigating? Those type of issues. Um, I mean, if it's spreading across the room, um, then, you know, it just may or may not be that some plants are being affected by that condition, um, that are obviously some type of infection going on with those plants. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing, number one, the brown roots are like a, a huge telling tale, right? Like we can tell root health's not good. If we have brown roots, even if they're not super slimy, that might have more to do with how dry was it when you did go check those roots. If it was super wet, those roots might've been a little slimy or as time's going on might see more and more rot. Um, so as Jason was saying, the total dissolved oxygen content, you know, one of the biggest things uh, we've seen over the years, people having, let's say, a, a fertigation room or basically a reservoir either in the room or right outside the room in the hallway, sitting in an ambient temperature that's much higher than our desired, like 65 to 67 degrees for our input water. So if that water is living above 70 degrees, we're seeing, you know, low total dissolved oxygen. And then also with that low total dissolved oxygen and better, you know, a little bit higher temps, we're looking at just great, basically a great breeding ground for different bacteria. So if your water's been warm, if it sits stagnant for a while and you've hit a point where you have an infection in your system, now it can spread throughout your basically entire grow. It might start out contained to a table, but your plants all live on the same table. They're all watered by the same fertigation system. So if you have any kind of contamination, you're going to see it start and typically slowly spread. Um, to me, that plant, obviously it looks a little sick, but if we're seeing the brown roots, that's probably the big thing. And one thing I would do if you are pulling down any of those plants as they die <clears throat> is just do 
you know, a cross section of the stem right at the base of the plant, get out your, your handy dandy magnifying glass, real high tech, <laughs> but, uh, do a cross section of that stem right at the base and start to look for things like, uh, basically brown buildup that you can see with your eyes inside of the phloem. And then look at the base of that plant, even dig down an inch or two and start looking for lesions on the plant and, uh, on the, uh, you know, buried part of the stem, basically the crown of the plant. And if you're seeing any lesions, you know, one of my big tricks is just go take a toothpick. If you see a brown spot, poke it a little bit. Uh, if it's squishy, you've probably got a form of root rot, whether it's fusarium, pythium, or a handful of others. And at that point, um, you know, evaluate if it's early enough in the run that it's really going to take everything out, might scrap it and clean everything. Probably a good idea if you're noticing that in the first few weeks and it's overtaken enough of your room that you're saying, well, my, you know, if your choice is I'm either I'm losing money on this run, how much am I going to lose and how is this going to affect my quality? I've got plants that have a serious root zone infection. I might get some through to the harvest stage, but I'm definitely taking a, obviously a huge hit on yield because I'm going to kill a lot of plants along the way. And then typically quality is also going to suffer and I'm going to be battling things like uh, aspergillus in the dry room and just a lot of stress towards the end of flower. So those are the first things I'd check. It sounds like your EC and everything else is in range. We're not seeing, you know, massively burnt leaf tips that would indicate huge pH fluctuations or, you know, giant EC swings. Your EC is right in line with where we expect to see it with any, uh, you know, if you're hitting 900 to 1,000 plus PPFD, we do want to see that little bit higher EC. That six range and 12 on the dryback is fine. Um, one of my questions, I guess, would be if I could ask this person <laughs> is, have you ever had a water quality test done? Cause a lot of times when we see a situation like this, we're looking at number one, trying to identify, like, obviously we've got some sort of root rot issue. If you have access to labs, it's fun to identify what that contamination is. Is it pythium? Is it fusarium? Is it something that's coming in from just right outside your front door? Um, is it being tracked into the facility or, you know, working backwards from the table, do we have an infection point along the way where that contaminant's being injected into the room? And that's why we're seeing it slowly overtake more and more of the room. And don't, don't discount, you know, if you've got an RO filter, any kind of water filtration system, if your actual filter becomes contaminated, you could have a contamination point right at what you think is the cleanest source of your incoming water. Wow, you guys, thank you. Great advice. Good luck to our friend out there. Thank you for the photos. Kind of fun to be able to do a little show and tell today. All right, we're going to keep it moving. We have tons of questions that have been submitted recently. So this one came in from Tricom Valley over on Instagram. They write, ideally, how far should my lights be from the plants after stretch? I'm using 1,000 watt, watt double-ended HPS in a sealed room with supplemental CO2 in three-gallon cocoa pots hand-watering. And is there any way to put the lights closer without causing issues? Thanks a million. So, you know, for HPSs, uh, I like to usually be three to four feet from the top of the canopy. And the reason for that is, obviously, if we've got appropriate airflow, that's going to give space for the heat to diffuse from those lamps and just help homogenize the environment above the canopy. So, I mean... Sure, you could go a little bit closer uh, if you've got really good airflow or, you know, possibly you've got a way to cool those lamps a little bit better. Uh, challenges that you're going on to there is that when we're working with HPS bulbs, we need some amount of 
space between the light so that we can get some uh, off-axis lighting down into the canopy. If we're too close, then it's going to be hard for your light spacing uh, to get consistent lighting across that canopy. And that's going to be a really valuable thing in ensuring that you've got a, a consistent crop both um, horizontally throughout the, the checkerboard of the lighting and vertically so that you get some some cross-sectional lighting down into the canopy. So um, three to four feet is kind of the answer that I would go with, uh, ideally. Uh, obviously, this can be very successful to have some, like a light rack that you're raising and lowering until your plants are at the end of stretch. So if you are you know shooting for three to four feet throughout the entire plant life cycle, you can see a little bit faster growth uh, early on. And you can also kind of have a tendency to keep your lights ramped at the appropriate level. Yeah, what we're trying to do there is just maximize light intensity in the canopy at the level that we want it, right? And as Jason brought up, you know, there's a reason with, uh, you know, 1,000 watt HPS, we've landed on a 4x4 four four or 5x5 five five design at various heights because we're trying to get an even spread. So lower the light, you're shrinking that spread. If you're going to start doing that, I highly recommend having a good PPFD meter that you can go in there and start to map out like, hey, if I drop my lights down to three feet instead of four, am I actually promoting a dim spot in the area between the two lights? And then, you know, HPS or LED, one incredibly invaluable tool every grower should have is a laser thermometer. Obviously, there's ranges on how nice and how accurate you can get. When I'm trying to set my lights, I really start to look at, you know, what's my PPFD at that's my average canopy height or, you know, am I growing Christmas trees or my growing bushes? That's going to affect it a little bit. If we've got a flatter, more planar canopy, we can get that light a little lower and not torch, uh, you know, oddballs sticking up basically. <laughs> and then the other thing is use that thermometer. If your leaf temps or your surface temps or your plant are cresting over, let's say 86 degrees, I found to be kind of a magical number. That's when I'm starting to see, uh, a leaf surface temp or a plant surface temperature that has, you know, it's too high. I've got too much VPD, too high a VPD in that immediate few millimeters around the plant. Even though the rest of the room looks good, that environment we're targeting there is too hot, too dry. And above 86 is usually where we start to see foxtails, loose bud formation, uh, those classic signs that your HPS lamp is getting too close to your plants. So like everything else, document it, start trying to optimize it. You know, different bulbs are going to be a little different and, Right back to what Jason said, if we, or let me extrapolate on that, in a perfect world, right, we would have a light lifting system that constantly maintains that 36 inches or so. Um, do we all have that in our grow rooms? Uh, I don't, unless I go in there and adjust my lights manually. So for a lot of us, we are, you know, stretching the plant up into that prime zone of like high PPFD that we want, but there's always that balance because you got so much radiant energy coming off your HPS bulbs. Yeah. You know, and ideally if you're doing a good job documenting your PPFD, uh, throughout stretch, uh, those plants are kind of going to get closer to the lights. You're going to get a higher PPFD and it's just going to naturally ramp up into the highest intensity that you want. Right. And so, uh, if you do a good job, kind of uh, preparing and, and organizing what your growth schedule is going to look like, you can, you can get away with not necessarily having to do much raising in there. Yeah. You know, like in, in my own personal situation, I can get away with at least the light that I have with the amount of CO2 I have. Just take my meter out and set my light intensity to where I want it to be in terms of PPFD compared to where those plants are. So for me, what that means is I actually might be running kind of a higher intensity early on because my lights are, or my plants are a lot further away from the light, but I'm still trying to get, you know, six to 700 PPFD right at flip there. 
well, as those plants grow up into the zone, that's, you know, a thousand plus, I'm actually turning down my light intensity when they're increasing over that. Now that's because I have CO2 limitations in my space. I'm not running like a full bore CO2 setup at home. But that being said, um, that's what a, a lot of commercial growers typically end up doing. You're trying to adjust it there and then, Hey, if you don't have an automated light moving system, what's the, what's the labor payoff in moving all of those? And then looking at like, okay, for our first three to four weeks throughout stretch, that light energy is helping that plant build structure, but it's not actually filling out buds yet. So with a lot of strains, we can lower those lights, get more nodes stacked on because we've got more light energy, but sometimes at quite a significant expense, depending on how hard your facility is uh, to go adjust that. Like big greenhouse situation where I got to plot an extension ladder to adjust every single light probably not really the solution I'm looking for. You know, if that's thousands and thousands in labor to do it every cycle, or if it's going to be, you know, a hundred grand for a light lifter set up for that room, I've kind of got to start weighing how much am I gaining at actually moving those lights. And from what I've seen, sometimes it's not the biggest impact at scale, as long as you've been able to tune everything else to deal with it. Great stuff to consider. Thank you for you guys' feedback on that. Tricom Valley, good luck and keep us posted. All right, we're going to keep it moving. We got a couple of questions here on YouTube. Dr. Green Thumb Aaron, doc, good doctor, wrote, I work in a mixed light greenhouse and we've been getting reveg by the heater. What do you think we can do to stop reveg? Mm, I, I mean, there could be a ton of variables going on here. Uh, one of the first things that I would do is, so it, it sounds like you've made one of the first steps and that's trying to, to localize it. Um, one of the things I always try to think about too is the like, is it actually the heater that's affecting it? Uh, you know, have you done things like checking your blackout, making sure that we're not getting more light exposure than our 1212 on there? Um, you know, typically... <laughs> I, I guess another thing that would probably be good is know the differential in temperature across your greenhouse. Uh, I mean, that was one of the challenge, first challenges that I faced while operating um, 4,000 square foot greenhouses. And, and that was just a huge temperature gradient. So if you can, you know, implement things like HVAC socks, um, it's going to be an improvement for everything. If your plants are re-vegging because the temperature is so high, then uh, it's definitely going to help. Um, but, but my first off, uh, impression here would be probably check for other causes that, that might be might be doing that typically i mean unless you're way up in temperature um you're not going to see a gradient because of that or the reveg um specifically due to that yeah i've, I've personally used up a lot of gaff tape <laughs> sealing up corners of greenhouses and stuff where uh you know i've got a small light leak that's not significant enough to affect the entire crop but right next to the front door to the room let's say especially if I've got an indoor setup and I'm running my room at night. So let's say it's light outside. I've got a little light leak only affects those plants. Um, one thing, we, you know, I have personally seen is a few strains that will do some weird things. If you, you know, try to drive them vegetatively too hard, we'll see continual stretch. The plant will throw out single leaflets, you know, it's showing some of those reveg symptoms, but I think it's important to try to quantify, you know, what, what is it? It's close to the heater. But in my experience, I'll go back to that magical 86 degree number. <laughs> Unless my plants start to go over that, I'm not seeing terribly adverse effects in terms of growth morphology. Um, going beyond that, there are some finicky genetics out there. You know, we've talked about it a fair bit on this show and I think definitely in other platforms where uh, 
hey, one thing we've seen is this particular strain, it, it can't, it doesn't like high EC, for instance, and it doesn't like successive bulking signals. It promotes too much stress and growth. We get some strange characteristics. If that's something that that plant is sensitive to, that starts to turn into uh, an evaluation of, okay, am I getting the yield the qu and the quality that I want out of the way my system works right now? And can I change my system enough to accommodate at that strain? And if I can, is it worth it? Am, am I going to get a premium on that? So there's, there's a few factors there, uh, it especially depends on kind of what scale you're at. You know, if, if you're, I don't know, Jason, what, under 2000 square feet, the uh, price of making facility improvements is a lot more economical than if you're at 20, 30, 40, 50,000 square feet, right? Yeah. And just kind of bringing up the, the, the last possible cause would just be maybe some uh, nutrient issues going on in there. Um, you know, if you're running a really high nitrogen mix in there, you might try and examine and then make sure that that wouldn't be causing it. Um, that's probably one of the last things there that I would check on the list. And I, you know, as always, when we're making recommendations, Seth and I are thinking about, you know, one, some of the experiences that we've been through um, to identify these issues Two, uh, a lot of times we're approaching with the most likely solutions that, that we can come up with. And then three, uh, you know, kind of going out there and, and extrapolating what science suggests and, and what a lot of our, our growers have experienced. Um, and so, you know, when we, when we list these things, you know, there's a chance that it could be a couple of them. Um, usually we just try and try and start with the one that, that uh, we think would be most obvious or easiest to, to cross off the list. Yeah. And if you've crossed all those off, um, just like with most of the issues we talk about and like that happened in the flower room, look backwards in your process. I just remembered there's another situation I've run into that was not my fault, but did directly infect me. Um, go make sure your moms don't have any bracts or pistols on them. If your moms are starting to pre-flower and you clone a pre-flowering plant, put it back into veg, that plant doesn't immediately re-veg. It can have a lot bigger effects on the morphology of your plant throughout the, the flower cycle than it would seem to be. And it's kind of inconsistent. Sometimes you, sometimes you can take a pre-flowered clone and get decent results. Um, other times you'll get a few weeks in and go, why is this thing just acting so, so weird? Um, in that case though, that generally affected, you know, that whole row of that strain because all of those clones were pulled off of the same pre-flowering mom. So that's another thing to look at is like localized versus across the population, right? And how bad are things being affected? Like, Jason, you brought up high, uh, high nitrogen. Do you have an inline system where you've got, you know, five gallons of veg mix that pumps to the, you know, you pump to the bedroom first. Now you're feeding the flower room, but you're, that first bench is getting hit by a lot of nitrogen, whereas the successive waterings aren't. There's a lot of little scenarios and basically knocking them out one by one and not going with the shotgun approach is the best way to finally identify it. I think that's quite a prescription for Dr. Green, so I'm Aaron to look into. Thank you guys for that. And you were talking a little bit around uh, about nutrients, so we actually is perfect segue into my next question from YouTube from Jacob. We have a question about feeding. What's more important, reaching field capacity or trying to reach target drybacks? For me, it's hitting field capacity, and you know the reason that that I'm doing that is because you know field capacity is something where um, you know we're stabilizing our substrate and reaching target 
drybacks. Uh, yes, it's great because then we can follow some of the crop steering recommendations that we have in there, but there's a lot more things that we possibly don't have as direct control of. Um, so we're thinking about, all right, if we're already in a substrate that's too small or too large, then it's going to be a challenge to hit the drybacks that we need. Um, maybe we have a strain that just doesn't drink as much water as we're used to. Again, going to cause some challenges to hit the drybacks that we need. Um, if we don't have appropriate light levels, it might make it harder to hit the drybacks that we need. You know, if we're in a uh, unsupplemented greenhouse, then we're always going to have to adjust our irrigations based on you know how, how much lighting that we can get in that day. Um, some days you're going to see much larger drybacks. If we have a day where we're at, you know, a little cloudy and it's we get 30 micromoles, obviously we're going to have substantial difference in how much water is used versus, you know, hitting 45 to, to 50 ideally for something like cannabis. Yeah. You know, and I mean, at least for me on that comparison, it's like Jason said, basically I'm, when we change volume media size, that dryback number is going to change based on the plant size and the media size that we have. Um, that percentage goal, you know, well, I usually draw a hard line and say, if I'm getting less than 10%, my media is probably too big for my plant, or I've got some other problem that's preventing transpiration, usually environmental or having to do with plant health. Um, as far as strategy goes though, you know, we're in crop steering, we're looking for those drybacks. We're looking for irrigation timing, but we really can't forget about pH and EC management. And what that requires is crop uniformity, right? So if I don't, take all my population that's on a single valve and try to get it back up to field capacity that day. That means I've got a bunch of this population that's now living under slightly different conditions and then that can tolerate more or less dryback. And when that's happening, I also, you know, if I'm not pushing that runoff every day or every few days, I'm losing my ability to manage pH and EC as well. So it's kind of a fine balance. However, you know, that's part of why when we're looking at uh, media choices, for example, we kind of tend to see the best performance in between, you know, 45 and 65% because that's giving us, you know, enough pore space to be scientifically great for the plants. They've got plenty of access to oxygen. And if we used something that, I mean, you know, for instance, we could grind that cocoa to almost a powder, make it straight up coffee grounds and get that water content way up. But then it's not really the best media for growing, right? So field capacity, number one. And then drybacks are great, but really getting that proper media size and then something with good enough porosity and also good enough water holding capability to hit those dryback and crop steering goals. If I'm in too small of a container, going to overdry the plant most likely, I'll be in kind of a uh, risky situation where if I, you know, miss a watering, I might have plants drop. If I've got too big of a pot, I'm never going to be able to bulk it. But just it's a holistic approach, I guess. And that's I think we've kind of talked ad nauseum about this. You know, your dryback numbers are very important. But if you're getting above 10 percent, we've got something to work with, especially if you've got a low flow dripper system where we can really, really precisely put small amounts of water on those plants. All right, Jacob, thank you so much for that question. Uh, we actually just got another question relating to drybacks here on the Hangout. Hugo, I'm going to read it. And if you want to unmute and add to it, feel free, but they want to know, do you think that it is possible to crop steer in 20 gallon cocoa pots by extending drybacks to multiple days? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, as we always say, everybody's crop steering, regardless of whether you're doing it on purpose, right? The plant is, um, it's responding to the environmental and irrigation cues that it is in, 
right? And so that's what we talked about when we were saying steering, right? It's plants responding to it and then either going more generative, more vegetative. Um, and, and the last question, more revegetative because of some cue that it was given. And, uh, you know, in something like a 20 gallon, uh, you know, hopefully we're growing pretty big plants to make sure we're taking advantage of having a 20 gallon. Uh, you know, and it's a lot of times, you know, we see that back in the days of uh, before drip irrigation was really popular. And that's just simply because you didn't have the, the time, the labor force in order to irrigate as often as, as we recommend these days. Um, so yeah, in something like a 20 gallon, you know, what, what I would do is uh, try to get an estimate of, you know, how much water content loss that I have um, and, and then start to judge it off, off of that. And, you know, say if we had a really, really large plant that was doing, let's say it was a, a gallon and a half to two gallons a day. I mean, that's gonna be a monster as far as, as water content and usage goes. Uh, you know, so that would be what, you know, two gallons in a 20 gallon, uh, container that you're going to be at 10% water content loss a day. So yeah, every three or four days, you, you might be getting a, a shot to be uh, generative. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think you nailed it there. Everyone is crop steering. Uh, with that 20 gallon setup, unless you're growing like a 14 foot tall, six pound outdoor monster plant, your plant's going to probably lean towards being super generative, high quality, easy to maintain. Um, I'd love to know if you're growing indoors or outdoors with the 20 gallon, cause that's going to affect a lot, you know, what you, not so much what you want to be looking at, but sometimes the ways you go about gathering that information. If I've got a 20 gallon pot outside on the ground, uh, there's no air gap under that pot. I've got a little bit different moisture conducting or way that moisture conducts through that down into the ground below it. And also potentially if I'm outside some access to that moisture that's in the ground underneath, that's going to affect how often I need to be watering. If for anyone that's in huge pots, especially if you're not used to let me in a 20 gallon pot, we can't go pick that up. Right. Or I can't, I'm not big enough, <laughs> you know, even starting with a basic soil moisture potentiometer, or something to just help you start to put numbers on where that's at and then understanding, okay, what value do I need to see that's an action item? Yeah. And, you know, I think another thing that's on here, he tied to, he's got eight, uh, eight foot plants and indoor growing. Cool. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'd probably still be going a, a little bit smaller substrate than that just to be more manageable as far as, you know, after I harvest and um, types of irrigations that I can get away with. Uh, I, you know, what I was going to say was, though, it's really important to conceptualize when we are in larger substrates, we're going to encounter a greater gradient of water content than we will in, in smaller substrates. You know, when we're talking about things like, you know, working in slabs, uh, one, two gallon cocoa or, or Hugo's, um, or even jumbos, you know, that the substrate is small enough and made of, you know, materials that are designed to be very consistent. And so a lot of times, you know, when we're talking about water contents, right, we're, we're kind of just being like, hey, you know, we're at 40%, we're at 50%, we're at 60%. Uh, and that's just trying to, you know, say, hey, here's an average for that volume of substrate. Um, obviously, when we're getting into something like a 20 gallon, a lot of times you're going to see, you know, at the top, and especially if you're in a, a fabric bag or uh, some type of porous pot like that, uh, you know, you're going to be getting pretty close to zero water content on the outsides of that. And you're going to get, you know, you could still be at, say, 50% water content towards the middle of the pot. And so it's important to conceptualize that and think about, all right, when, you know, where does in this pot my my bulk zone exists uh, and then try and, you know, think about that in respect to the numbers that you're trying to achieve. Um, you know, one of the nice things about 
about that gradient. And when you are in a large substrate like that is the, the plant's going to balance out some of that water content usage because the root zone has that gradient, right? So it's going to be a little bit more forgiving because, uh, you know, even if we are pushing it lower there, there's still going to be some available water down into the, the middle of that substrate. Yeah. And if you're in a 20 gallon pot as well, I would say there's a good chance you're not going with the, uh, straight salts route. Usually at that kind of media volume, you've got different amendments people are working with. If you've got an actual mix that you've buffered um, and has decent nutritional content, you're not relying only on your salts, it's going to be a lot easier to uh, basically maintain pH over those multiple day drybacks that you're likely to have to do early on in the flowering phase. You know, if you're, and also, I guess we'll talk to part of the reason, you know, commercial agriculture, commercial horticulture has gone away from big pots like that is also to get the veg time down. So eight foot plant in a 20 gallon pot, you're vegging for more than two weeks is my best guess. Um, that's a little bit different production cycle than typically we see in most bigger grows. Um, again, not to say that it's bad by any means, you just don't have quite as precise a control with your individual plant size, unless it's just a monster. Um, and yeah, I'd, It'd be very interesting to see what else you're working with there because there's a lot of factors that could really dis help you decide what you're going to do besides just going super generative and waiting a long time for these drybacks. So then uh, just to close out this convo, uh, Hugo dropped, um, so is proper vegetative steering possible in bulk weeks? Probably not with an eight-foot plant in a 20-gallon pot. Yeah, you can do some. Yeah, I would, you know, I'd still encourage, you know, some amount of repetitive irrigations and they can just be very, very small. Um, you know, the, the thing that is nice about that and the reason that we're, we're, we're always pushing people towards a, a manageable sized uh, substrate is just because, you know, we're bringing fresh nutrients, fresh oxygen in there and we're, you know, providing those, those bulking cues. So, um, you know, that, that being said, obviously we don't want to keep that substrate too wet. Um, so I would always never, uh, you know, try and do vegetative irrigations more than the transpiration rate, uh, or evaporation plus transpiration rate of that, that plant if I was vegging. Yeah, you can, you can do it, but you're not going to want to push it too hard. You're not going to make the, uh, the classic jigsaw graph that we talk about. You're going to have a lot deeper valleys, fewer P1 or P2s rather. And, uh, I mean, it is doable. It's just not, it's, it's going for the, generally we look at as like the lower effort approach to trying that, you know, there's, there's one end with a bigger pot. The other end is, you know, something like a six by six by six rock wool cube where we don't have the freedom to not water in the last two weeks throughout the day, because we're just completely out of uh, water holding capacity in that pot compared to plant size. So that's something to think about, you know, over time, um, if you are used to growing in the 20 gallon pots have been for years, there's many people out there like that. I always encourage you to try a little bit smaller pot and start playing around a little bit and see what, what works best for you. Uh, because when I think of growing indoors with a 20 gallon pot, the first thing I think of is my back. Um, how am I moving that media in and out? Is that, is the difficulty of handling that media in the facility going to make it so I'm a little less lazy about moving them out? Like if we go back to years and years ago, using 20 gallon pots for moms indoors and then, you know, replanting into those same pots because no one wanted to move them out of the mom room. Now we have root aphids. Like there's, there's a lot of things to consider there. Um, for some people, you know, moving from a 20 gallon down to a 10 at first and settling on like a five 
is usually kind of where they end up. If you start shortening your veg practices down from, let's say you're going for four to six weeks now down to two. Okay. Now we're looking at, you know, moving into a smaller media. So we don't have to spend as much time allowing that plant to grow and take over that media and actually pull water out. Yeah. You know, and what we're saying is especially true if you're using synthetic nutrients. Um, if we are in a, you know, a truly living soil and an organic situation where we aren't using any salts, uh, as you know, as additives in our fertigation and everything is amendments in there. Um, you do need an appropriate sized biome to support the, the life of, um, of the bacteria and the microbes that are breaking down your organic amendments in there. So, um, I, I would say, you know, just have that as a, a note of caution. If you are organic, there needs to be a, a sustainable sized biome down there. Um, but obviously if you're in uh, a more soilless type of, um, growing material, or if you are using, um, synthetic nutrients, then yeah, I, that's what, that's the route I'd go. Yeah. And you can get great results too. Like if you do have a really great mix, organic mix that you're using, um, you know, in the past mixes that I've not invented, but mixed up according to directions do include ingredients that give you a bit of pH buffering to really help you through that. That's one thing that when we're going with fully synthetic nutrients, just AKA salts, there's not a lot of buffering capacity in there. And that's part of the point, right? This isn't deep water hydroponics, but we're still looking for close to that level of nutritional control over what we're giving the plant. And at that point, runoff becomes very, very important to maintaining that pH balance. When we've got a dynamic living ecosystem inside of the, of the uh, substrate, we can, that can come with better pH buffering, which can be good, can be bad. Trade-off, you're going to need more media to give the plant the, same, the plant the same amount of nutrition, which is going to make it much more difficult to steer vegetatively. So there's, there's a lot of little things to think about in there. Um, and then, you know, finally, if you do, if you are trying to nurture a living biome in your soil, we're not going to go for those deep drybacks because as you approach a drier and drier state, you're actually going to start killing off a lot of that good bacteria. It does have to have a certain level of moisture to survive in there. And if I'm trying to keep my microbes alive, but I also want to dry my cocoa down to 15 or 12%, those aren't really compatible strategies. Oh my gosh, you guys, thank you so much for that. Hugo, awesome line of questioning. We appreciate you so much for asking. Yeah, you're so welcome. Good to see you on the program. All right, y'all, we're gonna keep the, the flow going. Um, this question was submitted on Instagram. Someone's asking, what's the procedure for fleshing rock wool using tap water at 0.3 EC? I get it down to 0.3, but then it starts stacking again and ends up at 0.8 to 1.0. I trigger warning. So, yeah, I, I, the first thing here, um, actually, a really good question. The first thing here would be um, get a water test, you know, try to get a water quality sample out and see what is in the tap water. Um, because uh, we could be at a lot higher ECs in that, uh, in that rock wool um, based on tap water. And as long as it's things that are good. For our substrate, you know, it's, let's say it's just high in calcium, but uh, it's just some free nutrients coming out of the tap, right? Um, now, if we're running into things like sodium chloride in there, then we're, we're definitely going to have some issues. Um, you know, at, at those levels, I probably wouldn't get too concerned, uh, depending on, on what your water quality test is, because we're going to add nutrients in there anyways, right? Um, you know, a lot of the cocos that 
I've worked with, I'll see them between say 0.6 and 1.2 EC, just, just right out of the shipping crate. And, um, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really affect it as long as we get, uh, a balance in there. So, you know, the really important thing here would just be knowing what is making up that, that EC that you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And if we're talking about trying to get that EC down in your actual rock wall, like we're flushing out or trying to flush towards the end of the cycle, um, that is one important thing to think about. Just what, what Jason just brought up with tap, you are still putting EC in. It's not a zero or 0.0001 EC like we'd see with RO. Um, so when you do that, I guess let's just call it a mechanical flush, but your big flush that's pushing everything out. If you resume a normal irrigation strategy the next day, just with that tap water and you're not pushing a lot of runoff, if your plant really has stopped feeding and if you are pushing your EC down this low, you've taken out everything and forced it to stop feeding basically because calcium doesn't do anything on its own. Um, we're going to see that stack back up unless you're pushing a lot of runoff because you're just continually putting it in and not pushing it out the bottom. Um, that being said, uh, you know, we've talked a lot in the past about not being too obsessed with flushing and maintaining good, healthy zones for your plants. And then, you know, a big part that's come into that, we're hitting a point in technology where we've, you know, not only technology, but just good data across all the growers out there. Where we've identified like, Hey, nutrient composition actually does matter to certain strains. Some strains are, I don't want to say really picky, but very sensitive to the presence of certain elements at certain points in flower. So where, you know, if I was years ago running a different setup and I'd say, Hey, I need to flush these plants. Ah, maybe there's a different product or a slight, a slightly different mix that I need to run <clears throat> on that particular cultivar to get, to get it to perform the way that I want to. Fantastic, you guys. Thank you. We're actually getting a lot of questions in about EC. Um, official loyal to the soil dropped this on Instagram. They write, what's the ideal EC for flour without overdoing it? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, this question could be asked and answered in so many different ways. Um, you know, from the perspective that we take, you know, we're uh, every day we're looking at continuous uh, continuous time series data of the EC of the root zone. And so when we advise people and we help them start to optimize the crop steering they're doing for specific strains, uh, there's going to be a huge variance in what that EC is from, uh, at the time of irrigation to, uh, you know, the, the peak, uh, at the lowest point in the dryback, right? The highest point in the EC, the lowest point in water content on that dryback. And so, uh, you know, I think what we first for stacking, you know, we, we're usually talking about ranges of in that, that substrate being up in the you know, seven to 12, uh, 14 um, range. And then, you know, for vegetative bulking, I usually like to be between, say, five and eight um, for, for the EC. Yeah. And this is on a highlight usually with a PDC of between 3.0 and 4.0 on most nutrient uh available or most nutrient brands out there. Uh, typically that's just kind of a level that allows us to continually stack salt in there, start to build that up. And, you know, one really important consideration to make is how, uh, you know, EC is one of the legs that holds the table up in terms of plant health. It's very important. What are my other factors doing? Cause I can run super high EC and still successfully harvest a plant but now there's a good that plant good chance that plant caused me more stress and cost more money in fertilizer. 
than it needed to if I was limited on, let's say, CO2 and light or airflow. So that's, that's another really important consideration. You know, if you can't, if let's just throw it out there, I've got a 12 foot high ceiling, let's say I got my thousand watt double enders strapped to the top and I've got three foot tall tables or three and a half foot tall tables off the ground at my average canopy height, I might not be getting a thousand or 1100 PPFD. If my PPFD is way back down at 700 on average for the room, let's say, um, I'm not going to need to run quite as high a VC, nor am I going to need quite as much CO2 or quite as much water because the plant's just not consuming all of it. On the flip side, you know, if we are pushing those values higher and higher and higher, especially when it comes to PPFD, uh, then, then we're going to start to see more, see the need for more EC. And then beyond that, we're starting to look at, you know, if everything's optimized, even spectral differences, not just between LED and HPS, but what kind of spectrums are your LED lights actually running? Because we see quite an interesting variety across all the different manufacturers, some of which have their own issues or non-issues, the, the way you look at it, but different spectrums can also affect EC usage and uptake. Yeah, it's just, so hopefully uh, I'm going to dive into a, a, a simile here for crop steering, right? And we're, we're going to talk about, you know, different strains and how they respond to uh, different steering tactics. And uh, so it's really, really important. You know, when we're making these recommendations, it's like, all right, middle of the road, but I know nothing about how the strain behaves. Here's uh, what I'm going to do to approach it. All right. Um, so, you know, let's say we're doing some crop steering in, uh, you know, in a go-kart. We're obviously going to be doing a lot different type of, of inputs than we are if we're driving a monster truck. And so when we're thinking about, all right, how does this strain behave? The best things that you can do is, you know, one, make some documentation on how it's performing. How is it reacting to the environment? And in this case, especially the nutrients and the regiment that I'm applying to it. Um, and then, you know, two, make some analysis on what you're seeing from that plant response. So that, that's really, really important to kind of identify that, hey, you know, we're talking about driving a, a Honda Accord or, uh, you know, what's the most popular car these days? Oh, geez, a Kia. Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> no, all right. <laughs> so just uh, just not to try to get too cliche out there, but but I, I felt like it was a, a very you know it's very representative, and uh, when we even look at some strains, we can tell that hey, this one is going to feed substantially different than another. Yeah, I think one of the things to uh, to really think about when you're looking at EC is you know throughout this plant's life cycle, we're adapting its roots to live in this certain environment. And that's like one of the primary reasons that as we've gone into, you know, cocoa, rock wool, these truly soilless medias, uh, we, we, we do want to get away from flushing because if we're only giving it those inputs and the media doesn't have any buffering, buffering capacity on its own, if we're wildly adjusting that root zone EC from a 6 one day to a 1.2 the next day because we flushed it out and then trying to stack it back up, we're really wasting time in, in production because the plant actually has to take energy and put it towards uh, either consuming sugars in the root zone or stocking the root zone with sugars to help adjust to that osmotic pressure change. So when we're looking at different ranges, there certainly are ideal ranges with certain strains in a specific growing setting. However, even if I we looked at what's that optimal range, all right, if I looked across the population of one of the best rooms I've ever seen on a given strain, if I went and stuck pots around there, I would see a little variation. If I was targeting seven, I'd see everywhere from a 4.0, probably up to a 9.0 at my wettest point across the room. And at that point you go, okay, I have this variation. What is optimal? 
might actually actually just exist in a range. It's not exact. And I've got to manage EC across all these. What's the safest thing to do at the end of the day to make sure my crop makes it through with good health? That's to just have the control to be able to maintain those EC ranges and not have it immediately drop out or spike up all the time because that can also affect your pH. And I mean, the more you radically shock a plant, which, you know, drastically changing the osmotic pressure in the root zone is a pretty radical shock to the plant, the more adverse health effects you're going to see and worse results you're going to get. So uh, as we always say, notes, pictures, really pay attention to everything that's going on so that you can also try to identify like, hey, did this strain like running at a higher EC? Maybe. Were we able to maintain pH throughout that whole run or did we stack up EC in the first three weeks without pushing runoff at the expense of lowering our pH? And that's why we saw some perceived lockout or burning, let's say. Um, you know, looking back at the data, it might suggest that, hey, the EC level was fine. We just didn't manage pH. And that's why we're seeing these results rather than saying, oh, we had too much or usually too little EC. We often see characterized by, you know, light yellow growth in new parts of the plant and classic deficiency symptoms. Thank you guys. I feel like the theme for this show is take notes. <laughs> it's a, a lesson that we come back to often. Appreciate that question. Good luck, official loyal to the soil. All right, we got this question in on YouTube from 618 Grow. They're wondering what week should I start drought stress and cooler temps? Um, I, I mean, one of the first questions that I would ask is, do we want to be applying drought stress? Um, you know, certain strains are going to respond um, slightly, you know, generatively and actually have a, a good response to drought stressors. Um, some, some really don't like doing drought stressors. And so when we're talking about, you know, the typical drybacks that we recommend, we're actually really not even usually getting very close to any type of drought stressors. Um, so in, in rock wools, um, you know, in cocoa, we're, we're not applying a drought stress when we're at say 20% water content. And what's going on there is, is we're usually using an osmotic potential to, to indicate some of these cues. Um, now let's say, you know, in something like cocoa, if we are getting down to, you know, 10%, 12%, we are going to see some amount of response to the plant, um, based on a drought stress stressor. And, and really what we're using to analyze this is what's called matrix potential and matrix potential. Uh, this, the simple way to think about it would be, uh, how much vacuum does the roots have to apply on the substrate in order to pull water from it. Right, and the different characteristics of different minerals in a substrate cause those matrix potential curves to look substantially different. In something like rock wool, we're usually not even going to see a drought stressor until the substrate is below five percent water content. And so, um, I guess that would be kind of the first question: is is are we pushing these plants very, you know, extraordinarily generative? Then, then yeah, let's do a drought stressor. And as far as, you know, to answer at what weeks, it's extremely strain dependent. You know, when we talk about middle of the road, um, like I was mentioning earlier, uh, you know, we'll talk about, say, three weeks of, of generative stacking at the beginning of the cycle. Um, and, and I, you know, I know we've said it in probably almost uh, almost every episode that, you know, on one side of the spectrum, uh, you're looking at, plants that are already generative leaning and we may not have to do very much generative steering and we can just apply, you know, bulking, um, maybe even after, you know, week one, maybe we actually don't even do much generative at all. And then on the other side, if we have plants that are genetically vegetative leaning, then we might just run bulking through the entire cycle. Um, and that, 
you know, that that's one of those things where we have to analyze how does this strain respond? And so, yeah, let's start with the middle of the road. If we know absolutely nothing about how the strain grows, um, take those notes, analyze, all right, this is what we saw in response to that, and then manipulate your application for the next run and go from there, continuous improvement. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this just really comes down to your media and uh, that that term drought stress. You know, we, we don't ever actually, not just to me, but when we define drought stress, stress in greater agriculture and science, what that's talking about is becoming really close or actually crossing the line that is temporary wilting point. So one thing we're doing with the media choices that not just Arroyo recommends, but people choose for indoor cultivation in general is pick one, both cocoa and rock wolf, for instance, being the two most popular, probably followed by peat moss right behind it. One beautiful thing about all of those medias is they do have a fairly low matrix potential, which means our temporary wilting point is quite low. And what that allows us to do is dry it back a lot farther than maybe more traditional soils laying out on the ground before we actually get that drought response, which is wilting. We don't, anytime we hit, we put the plant into a zone where we're truly applying uh, stress that would affect the plant's health, that's usually pushing it a bit too far. We're losing productivity time if we actually have to slow down the plant, right? Because if I'm pushing that too hard, too low, if I'm flirting with temporary wilting point, the plant's response is to shut down its stomata and try to reduce transpiration. If that's happening for that first two hours, one morning when the lights come on, my plants start to droop a little bit, my stomata close up. Well, over a few weeks, I've just lost two hours per day of produ production time that would allow my plants to grow or uh, produce oils or anything like that. When a plant's in drought stress, it is not actually really producing anything. It's trying to go conservation. It's trying to be as conservative as possible an attempt not to dry out all of its leaves by transpiring too much too quickly and wilting itself. So I, I think that's one of the really, really important things to look at here. And just like Jason said, you know, we see a huge range of responses among strains and usually the best, the best protocol I like to start with, if I know nothing about a strain, I'm going to try to run it nine weeks because I'll give it a fighting chance. If it goes longer than that, I'm probably not put into commercial production and then minimum three weeks. Usually I'll start out with four. If I have, if I've seen the plant in some other grow, that can still help a lot. I have an idea of what its stature is going to be like and any info you can get from another grower. It might not all translate to your grow, but it can help. And then you can decide conservatively, Hey, like for me, I like a uh, really simple three, three, and three, you know, when I'm baselining a strain, like, okay, I'm going to start out with three weeks generative as the plan going to go measure it, see how my stretch is doing. When does it actually finish stretching? Take notes. So next time I can modify it and say, okay, this one actually stretched to day 24, not till day 21. I'm going to adjust my generative range or generative dates on the beginning and then start out with three weeks ripening. Now, uh, one thing I know doing that is I'm probably not going to maximize my yield with only three weeks of bulking in the middle on a nine week run, but I'm probably, and I probably, I mean, I really haven't found a situation where this didn't work out. I'm going to avoid over bulking that plant and lowering my flower quality. So step one, I'm going to go into being able to see like, Hey, here's what these two irrigation strategies did for me, but I'm leaving plenty of time on the end to ripen up. That way I'm still getting the potency and look that I'm going for. And then, Hey, we can start to open that window up over time on successive runs and establish like, does this plant need a week to ripen? Does it need two weeks to ripen? Uh, is it uh, some old school Oreos or cookies and cream where we can pretty much bulk it right up until the end? Like there's, there's a whole spectrum out there 
And in my experience with the amount of, uh, oh, what's the word? Un, I don't want to say undocumented crossing, but due to the fact that it's actually really hard to trace some of these lineages in cannabis. And there's also a lot of variety and variability within these genetic lines. It's really, really hard to say outside of broad generalizations like, hey, this is a runt's cross. Here's how it's going to behave, right? Yeah, no, it, it, it's amazing to me, at, you know, how uh, sometimes crosses don't act like either of their parents at all. Um, you know, it's just totally outside of expectations. And, uh, you know, when we say things like strain dependent, you know, we're, we're talking about it all the time and it's, we're not, we're not, we're not trying to have a scapegoat on how to get away with this. We're trying to get you guys the best information that we can. And a lot of the work that, um, that we've been doing actually recently, and especially in the last six months, a uh, year is trying to enable breeders and clone suppliers to be able to help you with this information, right? So most any of the good suppliers that you're getting this stuff from have done some flowering exp um, experiments with the supplies that they're getting for you. And so, you know, you can ask them, get some personal experience from them. Uh, it's going to probably be a lot more detailed than what we can just roughly talk about without knowing what strain or uh, what your goals are. Um, and then definitely, you know, one of the things that we are doing is trying to help get the, you know, Aurora into the breeders experiments as well so that they can just supply this information. How, how did they achieve the best results from this specific strain? Uh, and they can include that with their, their stock and actually increase the value of that stock, not only for them, but increase the value of it for you and the potential for, uh, your, your sales output. Yeah, that way when you go through your first run, you look at the finished product, you at least have the instructions on everything they did to achieve that. And uh, I don't know, Jason, in my observation, working with some of these guys over time, breeders are moving more and more towards standardized production uh, procedures in efforts to help their selection process to uh, produce better results for most clients, right? Like that's one thing that is pretty, uh, well, currently very specific to cannabis horticulture in general is uh, every other part of agriculture, we've got a hundred plus years of plant breeding. That's really helped focus on traits that make these, these different varieties, you know, really easy to cultivate commercially. You know, if we, if we could fast forward 20 years, I can, you know, right now I can guarantee you'll be able to find a lot of the versions, a lot of strains that you like in a version that is botrytis resistant in a version that is fusarium resistant. Now, will they be a hundred percent resistant? Eh, maybe not, but we will see designer strains essentially, or varieties at that point that are trying to solve some of these product problems with genetics, which we know, I mean, if you've grown enough different strains, especially if you have some suboptimal growing conditions, you've been screening for mold for years. And so, you know, every once in a while you get a winner that comes through and just like, even when everything else molds out in that room, that one doesn't. And you know, we're just not quite there with the genetics yet in terms of, uh, well, the industry is just getting kicked off, right, <laughs> on a grand scale. So it just takes time and money and looking at like, hey, you know, to isolate some of these different genes, we might be looking at a few years of research going into this one line and then figuring out how to introduce those genes into other plants via breeding and how quickly that can happen. So like if I've got mold resistance, for instance, and it's a recessive trait, I've got to isolate that into a line that I can then go cross it in and back cross and make it uh, available in the line that I want to. That doesn't happen tomorrow, but I, it is coming down the road. We're just in the infancy of that. And that's part of why this is such a, you know, all these strain specific requirements are part of what makes this fun. And I think also part of uh, what keeps cannabis growers so engaged 
you know, I've, I've worked in bigger ag. I haven't met a wheat farmer who is nearly half as passionate about wheat as any, any cannabis grower I've ever met, to be honest. Like those guys might be passionate about running their business or having a, uh, a sustainable component to their farming operations. They're really into soil health or conservation, but rarely, or am, am I going to go out and meet uh, someone that's in field agriculture? I, I like to pick on wheat just because I could look out the window and see a bunch of it here. Um, but they're, they're not as concerned about like, what is that variety? They're looking at, Hey, how easy is this to grow? How does it yield? Am I getting the protein content numbers to really get a premium on my crop? That's it. Whereas with cannabis, we get a lot more little problems to solve and uh, just a lot more passion in general. And I think that's part of what attracts a whole set of people to this industry is it's problem solving day after day after day. Even if you take out the weed part, make it not cool. You're still engaging mentally uh, with some of these problems that are just like, they're not intuitive. Some of them are really difficult to really wrap your mind around. And it takes a lot of time and energy input to, to get there. It's uh, you guys we really are just getting started, are we? Sorry to cut you off, Jason. Go ahead. Oh, you're all, you're all good. It's uh, yeah, it's one of the fun things, you know, I always have anecdotes from the early days of an Arroyo and, uh, you know, and we were, I was getting into some boutique grows and it, you know, I was, I was asked like, well, what is, what is your favorite part about uh, going to work on a daily basis? And it, it seemed like the overwhelming response was popping seeds or breeding. There it is. All right. I have a question here. I want to get to before the end of the hour. And I got an announcement at the end. You know, I, I love to drop announcements. All right. This one came in from Rocket uh, Instagram. Rocket Bud Farms had a question. They're dealing with a situation. They're wondering how much AC BTUs or kilowatts do we need for 1000 watts of LED? I have eight kilowatts of LEDs and only 24K BTUs, but I can't go below 85 degrees Fahrenheit when lights are on hundred percent. It's my new room that I need to get up and running in a few days. And now I'm trying to calculate how much I need to add. Room is 400 square feet, uh, 5,300 feet cubed. And I use ACs only for cooling and heating. I have separate uh, 2,000, oh, two kilowatts of humidifiers. Rooms are sealed and CO2 enriched. Thank you so much. If I need to drop any more of those numbers again, please let me know. Yeah, I'm not going to do the actual calculations here in my head just <laughs> I was because about that. <laughs> I want to make sure that we get you the right answer. But, uh, you know, the approach here would be, obviously, um, if you want to know how much heat that uh, LED is adding to the room, um, then I think, what, one watt is like three point something BTUs, if I remember right. And one of the things to... Um, you know, consider is what the efficiency of that LED is, right? So a thousand watt light isn't going to put a thousand watts of heat out there. Um, depending on the manufacturer of those uh, LEDs, uh, have a, a reasonable de decent efficiency, right? So get an idea of all right, am I adding you know 300 watts of of heat into that room? Um, so that's going to be how much BTUs we already know we have to get rid of. So that would be the first calculation I do. The second calculation would be what's the temperature offset that I need to achieve, right? And so we have to add that in our BTU capacity on top of how much we're adding in there. All right. So if our lights are off and we need to be at a, you know, a 10 degree lower temperature inside this grow room than outside, maybe we're, you know, down in Arizona or something, um, then that's going to give you an idea of, uh, you know, how many BTUs per hour that we need to uh, inject into the room in order to maintain those temperatures. Yeah. Not make me pull out the books. I love having Jason here. Um, 
<clears throat> what, one little hint on that, depending on what fixtures you're using, uh, a lot of people have already done a lot of these calculations and you can go search like, Hey, what's my average BTU output per hour on a thousand watt HPS on X amount of wattage LED. And that'll put you relatively close. And then, um, you know, when you're looking at upgrading your system, especially with, uh, I'm glad you included 400 square foot room, um, don't overshoot your upgrades. So I run into that situation, particularly with dehues and ACs before where people are, you know, they're making a little more money. They're adding some lights to their room. They're really trying to pump it up, right? They're like, Hey, we used to grow at 600 PPFD. Now we're going to, we're going to get the capacity to grow at a thousand in here. One of the biggest mistakes they'll make is going and scrapping their old small equipment and then doubling the size and putting bigger units in. And now they can't affect change at a small enough level to keep it in the ranges they want. So anytime you are increasing that AC capacity, if you've already got an installation where you're like, hey, this gets us almost there, instead of calculating your BTU needs and saying, hey, I'm going to get one unit that'll take care of all that in a 400 square foot room, look at it, maybe adding a few mini splits or something that you can phase out a little bit more to give yourself control. Wonderful. Indie Buds, good luck. Thank you so much for your question. All right, before we go, I just want to let y'all know, we are giving away, I don't know, have you heard? We're giving away a go this month. If you want to enter to win, you just visit cloud.adium.io slash go hyphen giveaway. I'm going to drop this in the chat. Get over there so you can win you an go. Good luck out there, y'all. All right, and then one last thing, we did a quick poll on YouTube. All right, we have... Um, we wanted to ask, are you, are, are you, an, uh, are you med grower, rec grower, or both? We've got 14% rec growers and 86% are both. So we appreciate you. Thanks for all that you do. As a consumer, I'm certainly grateful. All right. Thank you guys so much. Seth and Jason, Chris, Chris, our producer, thank you so much for another great session. Thank you all for joining us for this week's Arroyo Office Hours Live. To learn more about Arroyo, book a demo at arroyo.io, and our team would be happy to show you the ins and outs of the Ultimate Cannabis Cultivation Platform. If you have any crop steering or cultivation questions you want us to cover, drop them anytime in the Arroyo app. Email us at sales at arroyo.io. Send us a DM on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We want to hear from you. And if you're a fan of the pod, be sure to subscribe on our YouTube channel so you never miss an episode. We'll see you at the next session. Thanks, everybody. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.